0: invite you to find a Bible, either your own one or a Bible near you, the black Bibles on the windowsills and the pews, um, or the blue Bibles, the large print, and to turn to John's Gospel, John's Gospel chapter 20. Will Will Allen preach from John chapter 19 on Friday evening, so I thought I would follow suit and look at this glorious passage, the glory of the risen Lord Jesus. John's Gospel chapter 20, it's page 900. And six in those black Bibles are 1077 in large print. Let's hear God's Word together. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb Then Simon Peter came following Him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. just put your eyes down to verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Amen. Well friends, there it is in verse 31, that last verse that I've just read together. Life, life, life is the point of everything, isn't it? This whole book, John says, is written that by believing you may have life in his name. Isn't that what we want? To live, to be alive, for the people we love to live. What what does it mean this morning to have life in a world of death? Is there anything that matters more than that today? Think about Turkey and Syria, what what we're about to do with our money this morning. Can, Can we even begin to fathom, friends, the death toll in those lands? The death toll that has now fallen from our news feeds and fallen from view. Nashville in Tennessee less than 2 weeks ago 6 people worshiped in church one sunday morning and by the next day they were gone we are heartbroken said the pastor of covenant presbyterian church in nashville his 9-year-old daughter haley one of the 3 children murdered we are heartbroken she was such a gift here in our own church family. Isn't it true, friends? We gathered to pray on Thursday evening, and we prayed together for Ben and Eugene in the loss of Hee Jung, this precious family, this beautiful woman with us so short a time, yet already so precious to us. How much more to them. We wept together. All I've done there is mention three different instances of unexpected, brutal, ugly death in the world. And yet here we sit together on resurrection morning, each of us having brought to church this morning our tales of love and loss, our sorrows, our heartbreak. And here we read these words on this page. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in His name how can it be true? How can we have life in this world of death? It matters, doesn't it? Our, our singing has been so full, our tears so real this morning, our joy so rich. It matters. We are not here to play let's pretend and make believe. This is not fairy time, story time. No, I, I want us this morning to see two things in John's account here, two things Two, two, two things about the resurrection of Jesus. And I, I want them to be like layers of richness and wonder. We're going to start with a really big one and then lay on top of it something even more astonishing. I want to show us, number one, the closeness of a king forever. The closeness of a king forever. Number two, I want to show us the beauty of a creation renewed the closeness of a king and the beauty of a creation. Number one, the closeness of a king forever. Uh, Strangely, perhaps, I want us to begin at the end of, of what we read. I want us to begin at the end of this appearance to Mary in the garden at the tomb, for I think this is just as big a surprise. What the Lord Jesus says to Mary is just as big a surprise as the empty tomb itself. Surprises the words of Jesus in verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Do not touch me. Isn't that strange? Don't touch me. Do, do not cling to me. Friends, think about it. What could be more fitting? What could be more natural, more, more right, more appropriate than in this very moment to touch Jesus? Surely, whatever it is she's doing here, it's what many of us would do. It's what we want to do, isn't it? Maybe you're here this morning sitting, grappling with the possibility of the resurrection. Could, do these people really believe the tomb is empty, that, that, that the dead body of the Lord Jesus lived again, that He left the tomb? Could it really be true? Maybe we think if only we could do what these disciples have done, which is to peer inside the empty tomb and to look at it with our own eyes. Maybe if we could hear him address us with our name, like he does here so tenderly, Mary. If only we could do what she must be doing, which is surely to fall on him, to hold him, to touch him. Surely it's the right thing to do. Then we would believe do not cling to me. I I want to begin here this morning with with, with these words in verse 17. I want to begin here because of the words in Ben's email, which Ben sent out. Many of you will have received this on Friday evening. Ben emailed family and friends, and he said this, He Jung died this morning As I was reading John chapter 14, verses 1 to 7, where Jesus says, "'Let your hearts not be troubled, and I go and prepare a place for you.' "'But,' he says, "'but I can say that the horror of death has hit me afresh. "'It is unalloyed evil in itself.'" even as I am extraordinarily thankful for being there with her in that moment as the consummation of our marriage and our friendship, death be damned through and through. Because as I write, I know she should be here. That, that's it, isn't it? As I write, I know she should be here. She, her, who she was, we do not miss the idea of her. Ben is not grieving merely her spirit. He's not missing the memory of her. It's, it's her, her in body, in person. That's who has gone so terribly. Oh, friends, in grief, in grief, the person is everything. We, we long to touch the body and to have the body near us, to be near the body. You can see this in the text if you just just work backwards in the story. Look Look at verse 12. Mary saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. It's the missing body of Jesus that matters so much, doesn't it? And look when Jesus speaks to her himself in verse 15. It's the missing body that is everything. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Him. Not, not it. Him. I want him. Look, look back at chapter nineteen, verse forty-two. It's a, a beautiful detail. So, because of the Jewish preparation, since the tomb was at close, well, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there, dead, but still Jesus, his name. So, friends, why in this moment, verse seventeen, so glorious? does he tell her, do not touch me? You know, I, I remember a friend years ago, a Christian friend telling me years ago that when somebody dies, they're, they're gone, he says, it's just flesh and bones left, just an empty shell. It's not them. The, the real them is gone. It doesn't, doesn't matter what happens to the body. No, no, it's not true, is it? It's patently not true. Listen to Nicholas Walterstorff writing so movingly about the death of his son. Now, these are his words in a book, Lament for a Son. With these hands I lifted him from his cradle, tiny then, soft, warm, and squirming with life. Now, at the end, with these same hands, I touched him in his coffin. Seeing and touching is a way of taking leave. Not a full leave-taking, not one in which two persons say goodbye to each other, but still a leave-taking. For though we aren't our bodies, yet of nothing on earth do we have more intimate possession than these. Only through these do we dwell here. I knew Eric through his body. In touching the place of his dwelling, I took leave of him. Just as in touching him in his crib, I welcomed him to life greeting and leave-taking go best, I think, when we do them with our hands. So, why no touching here? I mean, can you even fathom it? Can we begin to imagine it? That that moment when Mary thinks she has lost everything, she's lost the very person who had transformed her life, that the man whom she loved with her whole being, with her whole heart, in that very moment, she discovers he is alive. Alive, no longer dead, he's, he's living. It's really beautiful, I think. The text does not tell us, does it, between verse, verses 16 and 17, what she actually did to him, but it, it must have been an embrace, mustn't it? Perhaps falling at his feet and an instinctive movement towards him. Oh, it was so natural, surely so right, so fitting, so wrong, so wrong. See, I, I think at this point we're, we're meant to feel the wonder of, of who it is that wants to do the touching of Jesus. This is Mary Magdalene. This is Mary, the woman out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. In other words, this is the woman in in whose life Jesus had entered and changed it from from top to bottom. Isn't it true, friends? Those who have been forgiven much love much. Those who have been forgiven much love much. It's one of the most remarkable features of all four of the gospel writers. All four writers place women in the garden at the tomb early in the morning like I said a few moments ago, some of you might be new to this story, and if you are new to this and you're you're grappling with it, trying to get your head around, could this possibly be true? One of the things you need to know is that in the first century, if you want to tell a true story, a reliable story, a historically accurate but incredible story, a story that you want others to believe, you do not put women as the first witnesses on the scene unless it was true. True that they were there. In the first century, this is not how you invent credibility. The evidence of women was not admissible in court in the first century. Here's what they said, from women, let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and temerity of their sex. And of course, we all take a deep sigh of relief. We don't live in the first century anymore. But friends, John wants us to see more than mere facts that it, is, that it is the woman there. How beautiful that it is, the woman. How wonderful. But more than that, John wants us to see this particular woman. Look, look at verse 11. Notice she is back again. That This is at least her second journey to the tomb. T- take in the flow of the story. She went early, then she left. She ran to tell the other disciples. As they ran to the tomb, she must have run behind them. And she's back here again. And while the men have left, looked, waited up and left, how typical, I guess, and gone. Mary stays Those whom Jesus has changed so profoundly grieve for Him so deeply. Oh, she loves Him. What must He have meant to her for her to do this? Somebody somebody has said that the first appearance of the risen Lord was given to Mary for no other reason than that she needed Him first and needed Him most. Look, there she stands, verse 11, weeping, outside the tomb, and again, we're told, "As she wept, she looked into the tomb." This is not gentle sobbing, that, that Those words that are used for weeping there, these are the words for the death whale. Her, her entire body would be convulsing. Her, her whole world has collapsed. Did you notice how the words change in verse 13? I love the change in verse two, she tells the men, they have taken the Lord. But in verse 13, she says to the angels, they have taken away my Lord, my Lord. Somebody said Mary Magdalene was close enough to Jesus to tell an angel that he was hers. Isn't that beautiful? Mary Magdalene was close enough to the Lord Jesus to tell an angel that he was hers. He, he is my Lord, so why may she not touch Him? I want you to look at verse 17 again with me, and just read it to yourself again. Read all of the verse. As you look at it, let me tell you this. Some commentators say this. That they say that what Jesus is saying to Mary is, look, Look, Mary, I haven't, left, I haven't left yet, so don't cling to me. You, you don't need to panic, Mary. I'm not about to ascend. I'm, I'm not about to, to, to depart. Look, Mary, you're overwrought with emotion, but it's okay. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon." but I don't think that can be right, can it? For, for look what Jesus says next to her, "'Do not cling to Me, for I have not yet ascended to the, the Father, but go to My brothers and say to them, I am ascending to My Father and your Father, to My God and your God.'" Jesus cannot be saying, don't panic, Mary, I'm, I'm not leaving, but go and tell My brothers that I am leaving. No, that that can't be what he's saying. If that was the meaning, that is the very way to install panic in Mary, isn't it? Everyone would be rushing to get a sight of him. Everybody would be running to get hold of him before he leaves. But look look how calm verse 18 is. Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. No, friends, here is what I think is happening, what must be happening. Do not cling to me does not mean that touching Jesus is getting too close to Him and and that Mary just needs to know that He's not leaving anytime soon. No, here's what it means. It means that this kind of clinging to Jesus is not the best kind of clinging, is not the greatest and the most necessary kind of touching of Jesus that there is, that there is something more than this, don't cling to me, Mary, for I haven't yet done something else. I'm not finished yet, Mary. And when I have done this other thing, then you will be as close to me as you possibly can be. You will be even closer to me than clinging to me. I wonder if I can put it this way, if I can explain it in a slightly different, <clears throat> a different context reverently, I hope. Imagine a young couple engaged, longing and waiting for their wedding day. Young couples like that, they often say to each other, don't they? They often say, we won't touch, We, we don't touch. There is a saying no to full physical intimacy, isn't there? But in the saying no today, it is because they are saying the touching will be better then tomorrow. Once something else has happened, then it will be right to do that. When couples like that say no to each other, it is not no forever, it is no for now. But once we have given our public promise to each other, ah, it will be different then. Look what Jesus says here has yet to happen, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. You see, friends, the ascension is not just Jesus being taken up from the earth. It's not, he's not just saying, I'm leaving, Mary. He's saying, I am not yet enthroned, Mary. His return to the Father, He leaves the earth as slain victim to return to heaven as universal Lord. I am alive, Mary, yes, but I am not yet installed at the Father's right hand. And "'Oh, Mary, although you do not know it, that is where you most want me to be. That is where I belong, Mary. That is where I will be for you and for everybody else, all that you most need me to be.'" Listen to this. One preacher centuries ago put it like this. The words of the Lord Jesus in verse 17 are a denial to Mary of the privilege she craved only as to the form and the moment in which she craved it. But in their larger sense, his words are a pledge, a a giving of himself, not a withholding of himself from her. The great event of which the resurrection is merely the first step has not yet fulfilled itself. It requires for its completion the ascent to the Father, but when that is accomplished, all restrictions will fall away. Oh, and the desire to touch that made Mary stretch forth her hand shall be fully gratified. Let me say this to you this morning, friends. If you are like Mary, and so many of us are, aren't aren't we? we? We just love Him. I saw it in your faces, joy, tears, everything this morning. We just love Him. We love Him more than life itself. He is everything to us. If that is you this morning, can I put it like this? The reason we have Him is because Mary let Him go. Mary let Him return. She she didn't cling on to Him and say, you're mine, you're all mine. She let him return to the Father so that we could have him too. That's what he's saying here, Mary, I know you love me, but I'm going to burst the bounds of that relationship, not so that you may have less of me, but so that one day you might have more of me, and so that all the earth might have me too. Mary's weeping, isn't she, in the garden here, looking for the teacher. Isn't that what she calls him? Verse 16. But but the person that she finds, she's looking for the teacher, but the man that she finds is a man who is returning to his rightful place on the throne of the universe. Maybe you've never thought of the Lord Jesus like that today. We think of Jesus as a baby in the manger at at Christmas, a good teacher, a wise man, an unfortunate victim who died on a Roman cross. John says here, no, He belongs on a throne, and not just any throne, He belongs on the throne of the universe. He is king forever, not just Mary's king, everyone's king. He lives now at the Father's side at His right hand in the power of an indestructible life. But instead of that meaning, Jesus is separate from us, no longer interested in us, too powerful for us, too distant. No, Jesus says to Mary, look, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. In other words, Mary, I am not just yours, but theirs too. And if I stay, you benefit, but not others. But when I am thrown to, everybody wins, not just you. Oh, you're close to me, Mary, it's beautiful, but the resurrection is just the beginning. If you hold me back, Mary, what you have and what I want to share, no one else will receive. See, if I, if I decide one day to go and visit my parents, if I decide to pop over and see them, I have a key to their house. And whether they like it or not, I can turn up unannounced. I can go right into the house. Wherever they are, I have direct access. I can walk in and find them. Their house, their key, my privilege, I enter. But if you visit them, as nice as mom and dad are, you don't do that, do you? You ring the doorbell. You wait for them to come and give you access because you are not their child. You do not belong to them in the way that I do, but come with me to my mom and dad's house, and I will share with you what I have with them. I will lead you with my key into their house. Sonship gives me rights and privileges I can share with you. See see what Jesus is saying to Mary? What I have now done, Mary, grants you privileged access to the Father, privileged access. You are now adopted. You belong now and forever. What is mine is yours, Mary. I will share it with you. You know, I'm guessing as I look around the room today, there are all sorts of reasons why some of us stand far off from God, don't we? We we stay at a distance from Him. I don't believe He's real. It all seems made up to me. It's all strange, or I'm not good enough. I'm not like those other people sitting two rows in front or behind me. God would never be interested in someone like me. Well, friends, whatever the reason for your distance this morning, the message of the resurrection is clear. The message of the resurrection is like It's like a rescuer who breaks into a, a cellar where a child has been imprisoned in darkness, living in squalor all alone, and the rescuer says to them, let me take you to my father's house. Let me take you to a palace where there is more beauty than you could ever imagine. My father is more loving than you would ever dream. And he sent me to get you. He's preparing a banquet of food and drink, the likes of which you have never seen, the words that Ben read to Hijung, a, a place prepared for you, and I will lead you there, Jesus is saying. Oh, friends, the scale of what Jesus is doing here is so enormous, we can scarcely begin to imagine. I want to show you another thing, not just the closeness of a king forever. I want to show you, secondly, much more briefly, the beauty of creation renewed. The beauty of creation renewed. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, His ascension to the Father's throne holds out to you and me this morning a cast-iron guarantee that a new world is coming. A new creation has dawned. It has broken in. Everything is different now. A new world order is in place. A new king is installed, enthroned, and a new creation is coming. But how do we know? How do we know that one day, friends, the dead will be raised, that the body that we place in a grave or in a furnace will rise to stand before Almighty God? How do we know? How do we know that one day all our suffering will end, that our tears will be wiped away by His own tender hand? Did you notice the very first verse of our passage, verse 1? Now on the first day of the week, the, the, the first day of the week, and early on that first day, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. When the very first day of the week had just begun, See, so think about the timing, friends, the significance of that phrase, the first day of the week. Jesus was condemned on the sixth day of the week, Friday, and He rested in the tomb on the seventh day of the week, which was the Jewish Sabbath, and He rises again on the eighth day, the day after the Sabbath, which is the first day of the week, a new beginning day. It's why you and I are here this morning on Sunday, not here yesterday. On Saturday, we worship on Resurrection Day. Sunday, not Saturday, the Sabbath day. Somebody put it like this, Jesus' death on the Friday is the Passover sacrifice to end all Passovers. His sleeping in death on the Saturday is the Sabbath rest to end all Sabbaths his resurrection on the Sunday, the first day of the new week, serves to confirm that the old is gone and the new has come. And look, friends, do you remember creation right at the very beginning? What was the first thing to be created on day one? What did God say? Let there be light, light. Mary comes to the tomb, verse 1, while it was still dark while it was still dark. Do you know, friends, this is the last time the word darkness is used in John's gospel? The last time. Amazing. In in a gospel that has used darkness as a symbol for evil, a symbol for for spiritual blindness, for everything that is wrong in the world, the darkness here is lifting, John is saying. John is layering his story here, isn't he, with Beauty after beauty to show us the scale of what is happening. If you look at the last few verses of chapter 19, verse 41, in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Where did God create the first man and the woman to rule the world from? A garden who was Adam meant to be right at the very beginning? A gardener. Wasn't he meant to to subdue the earth, to tend the earth, to push the borders of the garden out into all the earth, to fill the earth and to subdue it? Oh, friends, wonder, wonder of wonders. Who does Mary mistake Jesus for? Verse 15, supposing Him to be the gardener, she said to Him, "'Sir,' Surely this is John saying to us, isn't he, again, as, as he has done so much through his gospel, Mary is supposing better than she knows, more than she knows. She is mistaken, but not mistaken. Friends, do you know why it's not, not make-believe? Do you know why it's not pretend when John says that by believing you may have life in His name? It's because John is saying to us, this tomb, friends, this tomb is not just a tomb, it is a womb. From this tomb is born the new creation. The very beginnings of everything that is wrong coming undone and everything broken being fixed, everything that is evil being destroyed, it, it begins from here. The, the new creation emerges from the tomb as Jesus leaves it, the last Adam the true gardener, the the one who will extend his garden from shore to shore and fill the earth with his his people. Is it any wonder, he says to Mary, do not stop me, Mary. Don't hold me back. Don't cling to me. I'm not yet finished with all that I am doing. So amazing, friends. It is not Jesus' Spirit that is risen, It's not the idea of Jesus that is carrying on, it is Jesus's body that is risen. I I had the wonder uh, fairly recently of talking to somebody who's coming to faith, coming to faith in a really amazing way from no background of Christian faith at all. And this person could not get his head around the fact that Christian people believe a, a living body left the tomb. He even spoke to some Christian ministers who said to him, of course, it's just the idea of Jesus that is alive. And when he pressed somebody, this minister said to him, Jesus' bones are in the ground in Palestine. And so he said to me, do you actually really believe the tomb is empty? I said to him, with all my heart, with all my heart the tomb is empty. N- n- notice, notice how amazing this is in the way, that, the way that John is putting it together here. Verses 6 and 7, Notice. The body has left behind the emblems of death. The linen cloths are left behind. Do you remember in John's gospel when Lazarus was raised from the dead? He came out of the tomb wrapped in his linen bands, remember? Still wearing them. But, but there is something, something different here about Jesus' body, isn't it? He seems to have somehow passed through the grave clothes in, in much the same way that he will later pass through walls and locked doors. Oh, the creation that He he is still, He still has a body, but it is a glorified body, a body like no other, a body that is in the old creation but which belongs to the new creation. Oh, friends, the wonder of today is that what is dying will one day live, what is broken can one day be healed, what is lost can be restored, and the end is not the end as we know it. The end of this man's life is but the beginning of creation renewed. I want to finish with this. Many of you many of you know the story of Joni Erickson Tada. She was in a diving accident when she was seventeen, and ever since Joni Erickson Tada has been paralyzed from the neck down from age seventeen onwards. And she tells the story, she tells it in an amusing way of being at a convention where she's sitting there in her wheelchair, and the speaker urged everybody in the room to get down on their knees to pray, something that she was unable to do. Here's what she says, "'Sitting there in that moment, I was reminded that in heaven I will be free to jump up, to dance, to kick, and to do aerobics. And sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb,' The first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. And then she adds, I, I with shriveled, bent fingers and atrophied muscles and gnarled knees and no feeling from the shoulders down, I will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives to somebody like me, spinal cord injured nearly all my life? Oh, friends, this morning, the resurrection is is the beauty of creation renewed. It starts with Jesus. It starts with Him. The first day of the week, it dawns with Him, but one day it will reach us too. It is the pledge of His presence, the very pledge of His presence, not yet in person but from His throne in heaven. He rules and reigns, and one day He will rule and reign in world made new forever and ever. Amen.